0: You may think from listening to this podcast that economic inequality is growing everywhere all around the globe, but it turns out that's not the case. There are some countries that are doing better than others. Here in the US, oh man, it's been an awful few decades. But around the world, about a third of the countries have actually seen economic inequality decline over the past few decades, while another 30% have held steady. To dive into the numbers further and learn about what sorts of policies work and don't work, I had the opportunity to talk with economist Faiza Shaheen, an expert on economic inequality and a former Labour Party candidate for the UK Parliament. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did.
1: I'm Biza Shaheen. I work at NYU um, at a think tank called Center on International Cooperation, and I'm a program director leading work on inequality and exclusion. I am definitely an inequality geek. I have a blog on it. If you look me up, I really only tweet about inequality.
0: Uh, tell us a bit about the blog, uh, what it addresses, and what inspired you to do it. Yeah, so the work, the, the blog comes off the back
1: of, work we've been doing globally, which involves 10 different countries, low, middle, high income countries, looking at what policies work to address inequality and exclusion. So it was partly about bringing out some of what we were finding in a more digestible format so people could read it and, and, and get a sense of what we were up to. But it was also because of personal experience working as a political candidate in the UK during the 2019 general election we had there, Knocking on doors and talking to people about actions we could take, like a Green New Deal, like uh, what we could do on wealth taxes, and often being faced with people that weren't necessarily, you know, angry or against these ideas, but felt that these things were just a pipe dream. You know, they weren't really possible. And trying to bring these ideas alive and demonstrate they are possible because they are literally happening in other countries, is a helpful way to inspire people that change can happen. And so I was motivated by that experience. And, and also because things you know, feel, feel quite hopeless right now. And so I think looking at solutions just helps us to feel a bit better about, about where we can go from here.
0: So let's talk about that for a moment because we certainly here on, on this podcast we talk about a lot of the solutions um, you know inequality is the is one of our main issues and we obviously wouldn't be doing this if we didn't think we could reverse it but when when you look at the world yeah there's a lot of countries where like the US and the uk where inequality has greatly grown over the past few decades uh, but that's not universal is it
1: no, it's not universal. And I think sometimes when we just get stuck looking at our own countries, we can feel quite despondent. I think you know, doing this work, uh, looking across countries, whether it's Uruguay or Costa Rica or Sierra Leone or some other countries that perhaps you know, are seeing inequality still be a big problem, but are at least actively trying to do something about it it can show you some of the ingredients needed for change. Um, And one thing that struck me was when we just did a simple analysis of the numbers of where inequality was going up and down. And we found, so we took kind of two or three decades of data for where the countries we were able to get that and looked at various different measures of inequality, whether it be the Gini coefficient or the top 10, what was going to the top 10%. And we found around a third of countries were actually, had actually made sustained change since 2000 so you know over a couple of decades had seen inequality decline and some of those countries were countries that had started from high levels of inequality like Peru and Bolivia and Argentina but some of those were countries as well like Botswana Sierra Leone some middle income countries that actually when you looked at what they had done they had actively tried to reduce inequality it wasn't that it just happened or it was just a matter of the of the numbers you know just as much as inequality is created through policy the opposite is true too so policy was undoing some of the inequalities that they had uh, built up in their system
0: let's talk about some of those policies uh, when you looked at the countries that were reducing inequality what worked
1: as you can imagine these things are, are complex but one thing that really struck us when we looked across both the countries that had seen notable declines in inequality and and those countries that had seen notable increases in inequality to the flip side we saw three areas of action that were really important in explaining that story the first was policies that elicit very clear visible material change um so that might be things like social protection welfare policies but also health, education, affordable housing, good job creation, for instance, action on that area was critical. Secondly, was something that I was a little bit surprised by, but actually just, you know, makes a lot of sense, which was that they'd taken action to build solidarity across groups. Often we think about, you know, tax policies and economic inequality separately to group-based inequalities, but these things actually go hand in hand, both in terms of who is left at the bottom of the spectrum. So whether we look at, you know, in the UK example, you know, ethnic minority groups, uh, Pakistanis, uh, Afro-Caribbean groups, um, you know, but we see that repeated everywhere. But where we saw sustained change, governments had actively tried to bridge divides between groups. So whether that be through things like using um kind of post-conflict tools even in non-conflict environments to build say citizens assemblies ways in which to bring people together to discuss quite difficult issues whether that be about um how you give communities the ability to to drive change um and also um looking at narratives really you know how politicians were talking about that country and trying to bring people together you know often we hear about divisive narratives but what are the narratives that are trying to unify people so yeah so we saw change in visible and material outputs we saw active efforts to build solidarity between groups and to address historic prejudices thirdly in securing credibility and government and this was about tackling corruption. And I just wanna say quite clearly that issues of corruption uh, and state capture, as we might say in economics, aren't just about low and middle income countries. We know that high income countries and our, our systems in the US and the UK are highly captured by the elites. So what do you do on corruption? Um, get people to trust in government and, and things like um, you know action that you can take to publish who really owns a company, for instance. Um, free press, those sorts of things that came under that third category. So it was about visible change, building solidarity and securing credibility. And those three areas of action really were important part of whatever country did well or did badly.
0: Right. And to be clear, when we talk about credibility, it's it's not simply um, some absolute level of corruption. It, it's, it's about perceptions of corruption. If a country has a higher standard, you know, the U.S. has centuries of rule of law and and a relatively uncorrupt government compared to some other parts of the world. It doesn't take a lot of corruption to undermine trust in what we have.
1: Yeah, that's true. But of course, like you say, when you have these stories of in the UK, for instance, with contracts around COVID protection equipment, for instance, where politicians have given those contracts to their right. friends, you know, that immediately brings out this undermines that credibility in government. And in the US, of course, we have a political system that is, you know, deeply influenced by uh, those with with the pockets to spend. Um, right. So, yeah, so that it's not just a it's not just a, an issue for kind of low and middle income countries, that issue of credibility and um, making sure that our systems, our political systems, aren't captured by the elites is important across across the world.
0: Yeah. So, speaking of the U.S., um, you write about prejudice as a as a tool for division. Um, I think the uh, uh, in one of your blog posts, uh, the, I think you said p- pitting different forms of inequality against each other, and how that has led to rising inequality in the U.S. How big a role? Is that playing in in places like the U.S. and U.K.? A
1: very, very big role, and it plays a big role in two ways. So first, of course, it does divide us. So what happens is that we hear these stories of in the U.K., the working class has become just the white working class, even though the working class population is highly diverse, made up disproportionately, of in fact, of black and brown people. But what's happened is that there's a very clear narrative that has emerged that says, oh, the white working class is being left behind. And the reason that you're being left behind is because these black and brown people are taking your assets and taking your jobs and taking your housing, and they don't deserve that because they're not really British. Um, is the undertone of that. Um, and so it's it's dividing those groups and it's definitely um, erupted in, in different kind of political outcomes, including, including outcomes like Brexit. Um, but also, in the way in which that distracts from the real story of inequality because it means that we aren't looking upwards we're looking across at our neighbours and we're not looking at what those at the very top of society are doing to make sure our systems work in their favour so they get richer which we see every year and even during the pandemic even more it's more in extreme during the pandemic and so these narratives have become extremely powerful and just to say, you know, the UK and I, I live in New York now, and um, see it here in the US very strongly too. You know, whether it be about you know critical race theory or trans rights, these things are coming out. But in recent travels and in our conversations with countries, you know, whether it's Costa Rica or South Korea, I mean, South Korea, the left just lost an election because of a strong anti-feminist movement that has come up whereby young men think that the reason that they're not getting jobs is because women are taking all their, you know, taking their jobs. And in Costa Rica, again, a kind of progressive government lost the election on the basis that um, the president had been sort of tarred with this uh, image of only being for the gays. And so we, we see this again and again, it's very worrying because there should be no, there is no actual contradiction between Standing for working class groups and standing for equality for uh, groups that have historically faced prejudices, there is absolutely no contradiction in terms of policies. But it, it, we've definitely see it come alive uh, all over the place.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a little depressing because we in the U.S. we we bemoan the fact that you know of course we're one of the more diverse countries uh, in the world. Um, you know, it's a nation of immigrants, people from all over, mix of ethnicities, uh, languages, religions, etc. And there's almost like you throw up your hands, well, what can we do? It's a heterogeneous country. It's not like we're, you know, Northern Europe where everybody's white and uh, you don't have those kind of racial animosities built into the system. But you're telling me that in very homogenous, Countries like South Korea, they'll they'll find the group to other and blame it on.
1: Exactly. If you give it, unfortunately, you know it's a tactic of the right to distract us. And so, yeah, I mean the South Korean case was quite stark. And even in in Costa Rica, some of the narratives coming out there were, you know, weren't about ethnic difference, and um, because there isn't a lot of ethnic difference actually in Costa Rica in the way right. that there is in other um, South American countries. But, you know, also, when we look at left political parties, they're also getting it wrong as well, because they often don't have their own story to tell about unity, or their own ways to um, demonstrate how policies are actually benefiting all working class groups or income groups. And there isn't this thing about one getting more than the other is mythical, that often the struggle, and often the struggle is the same if you look across working class groups, and little workers rights and um you know actually there's there's a big story to be told there about the strength of those groups coming together and that's exactly why that group is divided and you see it you see it when you when you see um you know amazon workers winning you know you look at the group of people and they are a diverse group of working class people in working in warehouses and 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 across the country to keep us going so when you divide that group then you're effectively also making it, you know, dividing and breaking the power that can really balance against what the power of the elite has.
0: Is it uh, as simple as uh, we need more class consciousness?
1: There's definitely some of that. I mean, I'm mean, i I'm struck in, in the US how, I guess, class isn't as big a deal as I would say that it is in the UK. It's so striking in the UK, even in the way that people speak, that it immediately tells you something about uh, the class that they come from, although maybe I just haven't lived here long enough to pick that up in the US.
0: <laughs> we're we're just really dishonest uh, about class. Uh, we claim it isn't a thing, and and yet we're sent. You know, people here are sensitive to it, and they they can tell the difference. And we behave on it as if yeah. There are I mean, I
1: can still classes. I can see the same class patterns here in terms of work and hardship um, and lack of voice and power. I can see, I can see those here as I see them in the UK and actually many different parts of the world. But yeah, class consciousness is definitely part of it. And organizing, organizing is, um, which is really hard work having done, you know, often doing the intellectual kind of writing the reports, but also having organized and done the activism, you know, getting people together, getting them to believe in something and to fight together is, is, Really, really, really tough work that is completely necessary and, and is a big part of, you know, often we think about tax and redistribution and the things that government can do, but organizing uh, communities is just as important, if not more important at this point.
0: Right. So, so, Clara, you mentioned, you mentioned taxes and redistribution, and we know that is a tool for addressing inequality. We know that because in the U.S., and in UK and elsewhere, it was used to help reduce inequality for decades before that system started to get undermined about 30, 40 years ago. One of the types of taxes you wrote about, you called a solidarity tax. Explain what a solidarity tax is and and how it has been successfully used.
1: Sure. So a solidarity tax is something that has been used for some time that is often short term that is built on a narrative of we've just gone through some hardship or we are going through some hardship as a country and we need to come together and have this uh, kind of short term ta- tax often on the richest. It might be on wealth, it might be on corporations, it might be on income in order to pay for interventions to support other groups. And the reason that we were thinking about it quite a lot in this project, because it was running over COVID, is that a number of our countries had started to look at a solidarity tax. So for instance, Uruguay had put one in place, and we asked an academic to do some work um, looking at where it had been used in the past, and it had been used, you know, many places in Germany after reunification, in Japan after the war, um, essentially to correct for inequalities that existed, and to also build a narrative of depending on each other of needing each other of giving back to society to make things fairer and I think that's the one of the things that really struck me about the solidarity tax um is that given the ways in which we have been individualized and you know the opposite narrative of you know look after yourself and you know work hard and and, and you deserve everything that you earn all of those sort of narratives built on many many myths um, mm-hmm. The solidarity tax starts to take us in the other direction. I think in doing this work and working with governments around the world, it really struck me how much often as policy thinkers we're not thinking about the politics and the communication plans around policies. And so we may want a longer term wealth tax, and that's certainly what we should be doing what we should be doing and that would help given wealth accumulation, but we have to take people on a bit of a journey and so, how does a solidarity tax, especially in light of the pandemic and now the cost of living crisis, start making that argument for the rich giving back and getting people on board and, and moving us in a direction of, of a wealth tax. So that's, I think, some of the appeals of a solidarity tax. It gives us that language that we so need to, to build that sense of who owes what to society and the social contracts that we need to reposition and re and rewrite,
0: and it's as much about advancing a narrative as it is about raising revenue.
1: Exactly, exactly. So, what's the narrative that we? What's the story about ourselves that we want to mm-hmm. tell? And then, what are the policies that like help us do that? So, yeah, I think that's I think that's why solidarity tax did appeal at this particular point. Although one thing is to say is that we're you know we're running out of time on some of these things. You know, although we're in a cost of living crisis now. You know, a lot of research around tax and when you can introduce higher taxes is that you've got to have those those moments. Right. Timing is is really important, and so it's frustrating to not see that that kind of move in in many in many countries. Although some countries have managed to do it, and they are sticking with it.
0: Uh, it's frustrating how we on the left never seem to be able to take advantage of a crisis, <laughs> and the other side always does.
1: Yeah, I mean, even though there's a huge amount of public support, actually, I mean, we did this public polling across eight eight of our countries, so included from like Canada and Sweden to Uruguay and Sierra Leone and um, Tunisia, and there was huge amounts of agreement across those populations about the need to, for instance, pay essential workers more. That was the most popular policy, you know, every country over 80% of the, of the population felt that that was necessary. And It's frustrating that we don't see the change that even people want to see.
0: I'm curious uh, in the data, were there high-income countries who have reduced inequality over the past few decades? There's some high-income, I mean, I guess in terms of like the top
1: 20 countries, there were not high-income countries that have managed to reduce inequality for the most part. For the most part, they've seen inequality increase There was plenty of high-income countries that have seen inequality increase over the last couple of decades. You know, even countries that we think of as really as, as utopia countries in terms of equality, you know, Norway, Sweden, New Zealand, they've all struggled with wealth accumulation at the top. But there are some countries that have, that are doing some, I wouldn't want to take away some of the really good things that have happened, say, on childcare policies and reducing gender inequalities in some of those countries. And I think the power and the drivers of inequality globally and in particular, the financial system and wealth accumulation are so strong that even if some countries are are not seeing huge levels of inequality or, or somehow kind of fighting to stand still, they tend to be doing some good things. So I think there's no kind of perfect country, although there's some countries that you can look at and really see that they have built a consensus around addressing inequality like like Uruguay um, and Costa Rica and to some extent Sierra Leone I think some more provincial governments are doing some really good stuff and some cities are also really trying to address this issue as, as much as they can within the powers that they have so you know Scotland, Wales and the UK are doing much more because they have a political consensus to address inequality in other places where there's just no political will, i.e. England, where we have Boris Johnson in charge, then it's, yeah. you know, it's very, very difficult.
0: So, so let's talk about uh, Boris Johnson's England and uh, our United States here. Uh, if, we were, if we put you in charge and you had no political constraints, what would be your, your top policy proposals?
1: So I guess I would start with um, a green, a big green investment program. And one which meant that we're not just building more renewable energy, for instance, but that's owned by local community. There's Mm -hmm. this horrible statistic in the UK right now that of all the new wind turbines built, only one of them is owned by the UK government. I think the way in which green change is happening um, is actually concentrating wealth in a new way and we need to break that. So a big green investment program, because that creates a lot of good jobs as well, would be key. Um, you know, a country like the UK, where you can borrow cheaply and the government can invest over the longer term, a, a universal childcare provision, I would say, is a, just pays off. It's just it's just a win, win, win. You know, it's a win for women. It's a win for the labour market, it's a win for that. children. A hundred percent. I mean, it's a yeah. no-brainer, really. You know, so those two are really critical policies, but, and alongside that, just thinking about these three policy areas around visible change, solidarity building and and securing credibility, I would certainly look at some mechanisms by which we could have a national conversation. I think just as we see in the US, you know, with say like discussions around abortion, this is like, we are a hugely polarized population and, we're starting, I mean, not that we're starting to, but there's a lot of the hate that has come out, which is, you know, it's very hard to build political consensus or, you know, even a nice place to live when there's that much hate between groups. And um, I think ways of which to say, emulate some of what Ireland did on the citizens' assemblies, I would look at to just have that conversation to start rebuilding that trust in each other and across the country. So that that to me is something I would want to do around solidarity building. And then, I mean, we really have to change it. I, I, I don't know how much people listening to this show would have watched parliament or seen <laughs> UK parliament. I mean, it's so arcane and it's so full of the same old people that who's, you know, who've ruled the country and the seas and the empire for centuries. Um, there's some real cultural change that needs to happen in Westminster to um, have some better representation of different groups um, and to, you know, I would move parliament out of London and out of that building and make it much more accessible for people. And just ah. to me, it's just so steeped steeped in this old silliness almost of tradition that has not helped. So some way to really fundamentally shift the, the way in which the parliamentary culture currently exists. And, and certainly proportional representation is something that we should, we should have because currently people vote and their vote often doesn't mean anything. So yeah, those are just some things off the top of my head.
0: Yeah. Well, at least you, you don't have a, a, a constitution standing in your way.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Fundamental changes here are nearly impossible.
1: Yeah, but I mean, if you've, got a, if you've got a history steeped in the kind of pompous elitism that the UK has and that's colonial true. history that it sticks to, it's, you know, it's still very, very hard to, to fight the establishment. And that's, you know, that's the problem in so many places. And then it always just comes back to how we build movements to counter that.
0: Okay, so despite all these obstacles, are, are you optimistic that we can address this issue?
1: I think one thing I've really been inspired by in this work, looking abroad is that no, I haven't found the perfect country or the perfect leader, but that there are good people trying to do good things. um, And it is possible when you, when you have that vital ingredient ingredient of political will, you know, it's not that change is possible, right? Change Mm -hmm. is actually possible. And so I'm hopeful in that sense that, you know, it's not impossible, but I, also do like most people have those moments where I think, gosh, you know, how do we, where do we go from here? Um, Especially somewhere like the UK where we've had a conservative government for so long and it doesn't feel like that's going to come to an end anytime soon. And when, when we did have a more expressly progressive labor party, it you know, it really struggled if I can put it that way um, Mm -hmm. and then didn't do well in the end.
0: Well, there's no shame in tilting at windmills. You know, if you're, uh, uh, even if it feels a little quixotic, it's uh, better to fight the fight than to give up.
1: Exactly. I mean, and I just don't think that there is any, I don't think we have a choice to give up really. I just don't, given everything that's happening and the multiple challenges that we face, there is is only one option and that is to fight.
0: Well, maybe you've just answered it, but I'll I'll give you our final question, which is uh, why do you do this work?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I do this work, it it started from a very young age for me, I think I just, you know, saw a lot of injustices and just felt very angry about things, and I grew up in a working class family, my dad was a car mechanic, but I managed to get into the University of Oxford, and then was totally exposed to um, the Boris Johnsons of this world, and yeah, felt very, very angry, and very sad about the human potential that is wasted when you have such inequalities. Um, and my mum was Pakistani, my dad from Fiji. And you know, you can see it definitely in Pakistan as well, where country where people can have so much talent, but because of inequality, they're kept in their place and they you know, they have a lot of hardship. So yeah, it comes from a very personal place for me. I just inequality is injustice for me. So yeah, I can't imagine really doing anything else.
0: Well, uh, thanks for doing it. <laughs> Keeping up the fight.
1: Yeah, thank you, and as, as well. I mean, there's so many people fighting this fight now.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's possible. I think, I think we can. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a born pessimist. Uh, Short term, I always expect the worst to happen. But I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think there was an opportunity to win.
1: And you build. I think there is something about the community that you can build
0: mm-hmm.
1: around you and knowing other people that are doing similar things that can keep you going and also we're right <laughs> we're right yeah we yeah. are right so
0: yeah. yeah there's some there's some solace in that uh, but keep up the good work and keep the focus on narrative because i think a lot of folks on our side lose sight how important storytelling is uh to winning these battles
1: absolutely i think often i mean i'm surrounded so often with academics that so are just thinking through some of the technical design and i'm like You've got to be able to sell this to people. And, uh-huh. if, and, and if you've never done it, people listening to this that care about inequality, go at some political campaign for a candidate that you care about, go and knock on doors. And, and it will make you realize how important storytelling and narrative is, um, you know, just rationally explaining things with statistics doesn't, does not work. You've got to put your heart into it. And, and that is a really, really big part of the story.
0: All right, stories shape the world.